Relax and welcome to a new episode of Entrepreneurs Playing Games Podcast Edition. About every two weeks, I host a live video stream where I deep dive into startup founders' journey after playing video games with my guests. Here is the audio version of our discussion. If you are interested in the full video, be sure to check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash amandineflax. For any questions, suggestions, or just to say hi, you can find me on Twitter at amandineflax or at entrepreneurspg. In this week's episode, I am joined by Oliver, the founder and CEO of RightsDD. What are you working on? Sure. So RiceDD is the modern slavery due diligence platform. Mm -hmm. So the background to this is that there are 16 million slaves. So that's 16 million victims of forced labor, of of the worst forms of child labor, um, working in global supply chains today. So they are making the things and delivering the services that we all consume. Um, That's clearly unacceptable and and, and new laws are coming to force that require companies to, to deal with this. Um, And so what we do is we provide a a due diligence platform Mm -hmm. for um, assessing your suppliers as a company, assessing your suppliers for slavery risk. And then having identified high risk suppliers, we provide processes and a management system for uh, mitigating and and managing that risk and the reporting as well. So it's it's a business, it's an enterprise software solution. It's a a due diligence product. which happens to tackle a major social issue. Major, indeed. Um, so I stalked you a bit online. I had okay. a look at your profiles and your experience, and I saw that you have been working in human rights for quite a long time also before. So what's the story behind the company? How did it start? It? Yeah, sure. So I, I um, really started my career as a mining and oil and gas journalist. So I okay. spent, yeah, so I had a little uh, a wrong turn before that. I actually started in commercial real estate and got, got made redundant during the economic crisis. But uh, after that, yeah, I spent four years oil and gas and mining journalist. So I worked um, uh, and lived in all around the world um, in, in the likes of, of Ghana, in West Africa, Brazil. And I got really interested in uh, labor and community relations issues, mm-hmm. you know, and so if you're operating a mine in, in, in West Africa, for instance, the the local community and your workforce, they really matter and they really matter in a way that can totally close down your business in an instant. Um, and so it's really, it's, it's kind of strange, but it was mainly the, the mining guys who really taught me about I didn't understand it to be human rights at mm. that moment in time, but between the relationship between human rights and business. Um, so from there, I um, moved to a consultancy um, based out of Brussels um, in Belgium, where I, I've then lived for three years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, they do some really fascinating stuff for a bunch of war crimes investigators. So they do a lot of work on behalf of Western governments in, in places like Syria and Iraq. But I, I joined to help them build um, private sector practice. So I um, kind of worked on two ventures there. So I, firstly, we were doing consulting to mining and oil and gas mm-hmm. on human rights issues. And then secondly, I set up a subsidiary which audited armed private security companies for compliance with a US government mandated human rights management system. So. Um, in it quite quite much of this is kind of the underlying process is really quite boring um but really you know, what that was about was there had been 
some really horrific human rights abuses mm-hmm. um, perpetrated by private security companies operating in, in the likes of Iraq. Um, and part of the response to this was to create a management system, so an operating system, which kind of embedded respect for human rights into their systems. So I was working on that and kind of, if you like, a bit of an, an entrepreneur setting up that subsidiary. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that we worked on that. And then I, I, I increasingly came to the realisation that, so there's a kind of wider narrative here of laws changing and so forth that we can perhaps come back yeah. to. But Yeah, I have some questions <laughs> about that, actually. Yeah, <laughs> but, but really I kind of, my, my feeling was this, like, in order to end these human human rights abuses in business supply chains mm-hmm. we need companies to respect human rights which we can kind of go into again in depth and, 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 and um, specifically engage in this process of due diligence mm-hmm. but the problem is we're not achieving scale you know we as service providers are trying to do this as consultants as lawyers and it's just not viable we yeah. can't tackle the problem at the scale that's mm. necessary but this is a process and therefore to a large extent it can be automated and so it was clear to me that there was both a social and a business opportunity to build scalable software solutions which is what we're doing at rice db great that's a, and i guess it also helped you get a better sense but also get contact and relation with actors in place um to start on good foundation Absolutely. so what are the um main actors because um, I went onto your website also, and I have the feeling that it affects many different type of industries. Absolutely. You mentioned mining, but I think there are lots of industries affected. And um, who are the major actors that can actually make some changes um, in yeah. this space? And what is the what the uh, what the modern slavery looks like also today? Sure. So I think the everyone can make a difference on this is, is the kind of short and, and, uh, and cuddly answer, right? Um, but we've got consumers, we've got government, we've got business, um, and then, of course, we've got you know, actual workers mm-hmm. themselves. Um, but so to answer your question about industry, there's a, there's a common assumption that this is a problem for a small handful of industries. You know, so maybe mining, um, apparel, clothing, you know, mm-hmm. we, this is what you hear about. And certainly informal mining and the clothing supply chains are have major problems. But really this is a problem that can affect any supply chain. And you know, we start, you start realizing that supply, every company is different, supply chains are huge. And so you're, you might be doing whatever, something super high tech, um, Maybe you're, you're in, 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 in software, right? So mm. or you don't have a physical supply chain. You do. You know those hoodies with your logos on? Yeah. They're, they're there. Similarly, who, who, who's cleaning your office space? So really, our, you know, our, and every company, come back to the laws again, but every company is expected to engage in a process of due diligence, right? So we, from the, from the onset, have said, this process needs to work across all industries and all companies yeah. and we are confident it can so you know we're really there to service any company we're really we're really happy servicing like boring companies you know mm-hmm. chemicals companies or whatever like not the obvious ones not the brand names because that's where we affect the most mm. change you know it's if 
we only get scale if we can operate across industries. Yeah. And I guess it's a start, right? Once some of the actors are already using a product and um, trying to change things at their own scale, then the bigger one are like, well, it works for them. So that means that we can also rely on that and it has a real impact. Absolutely. You know, for, from a consumer angle, you know, it's important to recognize that no supply chain can guarantee it's slavery free, right? That's mm. not what this is about. It's yeah. about ending slavery kind of around the world, mm. not kind of guaranteeing the perfect purity of a, a supply chain. But yeah. every company can do something. You know, they can engage in due diligence, right? Which is proportionate to their size and their means and their, and their risk profile, but every company can do that. Mm. And it's only by every company doing that that we can actually help end slavery and supply chains. You know, it, it's about everyone shining a light. That's yeah. what's key. Yeah, I definitely get that. And before we get to play video games, I'd like to know, so what's your, what's your angle to approach that? Who are the first uh, maybe actors or industry that you want to tackle first? Because even though it can affect anyone and anyone can have an impact, then, well, you're a business, so you need to start somewhere and to have Absolutely. a target audience. So who are you starting with? Yeah, so really we've, over the last year, we've been, um, you know, we built our minimum viable product, our MVP, and we, we've been testing it with paying clients. And we were really keen to make sure that even if they didn't pay a lot, companies did pay us something to ensure they actually engage with the process. We haven't done much in the way of outbound work at all to bring in those okay. clients in fact like we did one email campaign mm -hmm. and that's basically it and tried to which is really light really light <laughs> and it didn't get anywhere right okay okay but what happened was we started getting inbound inquiries and referrals through our network um and so you know we've um we've been testing with three paying clients and, and working with three paying clients over the course of this year um and they've they've come to us um they found us on the internet or through a partnership we have with a Japanese NGO. Um, and similarly, we've got a pipeline of prospects um, from around the world um, and they've, they've come to us. So that's not to say that we won't engage in outbound mm. work. Of course we will. But we're really excited by firstly the fact that despite having basically done no SEO, virtually no content marketing, mm -hmm. people are finding us. Okay. So we're excited by that. We're also excited by the diversity of our base. So I think from a kind of where do you start perspective, there is definitely a logic from a marketing perspective in focusing on one industry or mm -hmm. one country. And we, we may return to doing that. But really, the fact of the matter is that we need to demonstrate there is a big market out there. Yeah. Now, we've, of course, we've modeled our market and so forth. But the fact is we're getting Australian companies coming to us like, Japanese, mm -hmm. Irish, uh, American, Czech, from all different industries, right? Which, which is more, you know, is clear evidence of diversity of market. Um, so yeah, we may the kind of the, the the narrowing down what you focus on, um, from a from a marketing perspective, definitely makes sense. But at the moment, while we've got companies coming to us, mm. talking to all the type of people, do you feel that you have to do lots of evangelization or do you think that it's a problem people get people understand that it's something that needs to be fixed right now i think people get it you know it's mm. clear that slavery is a bad thing i think there's um 
a misunderstanding understandably of what slavery is mm -hmm. there's a kind of tendency to um, assume that anything that is seen as kind of abusive or a bit exploitative is, is slavery so I've, you know mm. sometimes get frustrated when i get people comparing their own job to being a slave but you're like uh, no see. it's not just yeah. just don't say okay. that um, you know but um no i think people get it um but it's a bad thing it's i think where the challenge is is not necessarily with companies but look we, we're in a kind of era where there's a lot of news about companies doing bad things mm -hmm. right and people but it's quite myself included often assume that's just noise you know it's like you know we hear these occasional stories and it doesn't mean anything mm. and so when i speak you know when i'm speaking to potential investors and and kind of society at large i guess there's often a kind of assumption that it kind of like it, yeah it does it happens and then things move on and and you know they get away with it maybe you know company mm. doing x bad thing gets away with it or doesn't change more importantly that's really what matters is change but actually now we're starting to see that it does matter right so mm. i think the strongest data point there is for this is um pwc do an annual survey of the 2000 largest companies in the world largest listed companies in the world and part of that survey is looking at why ceos get fired and over the last decade um, there's just been a total step change in why CEOs get fired. Mm -hmm. Today, forty or last year, forty percent of CEOs fired from the world's largest companies were fired for ethical reasons. Okay. You know, Ten years ago, so during the crisis and, and before that, it was uh, one in ten. Today, mm -hmm. it's four in ten. It's actually you're more likely to be fired for ethical, like ethical reasons, mm -hmm. for than for financial ones. So in amongst all that noise, and there is a lot, the fact is that management and companies are more, do need to be more accountable. Mm. And actually, if you're looking for kind of preservation, kind of doing the right thing as a CEO is a very good way to preserve uh, your, your, your time in office. Okay. That, that's interesting. Um, I feel that sometime when you hear these uh, big stories and the CEO is fired, feel that you know the CEO is just one cover and it's just a person that has to take the uh, um, the blame because you have to blame someone and then firing the CEO might not change anything mm. uh, because it's about the practices and and the processes within the company so the CEO is the person who is supposed to be in charge and, and the public face so that's the person who takes the blame um, I think that's very true of course you know the, the sort of that much used adage of the buck stops here yeah. right you know they are the boss and therefore they have to be, they may be kind of sacrificial, but they are the person who runs the company. You know, sure. they're held to account by the directors. Um, and so you see the, the boss needs to, you know, those cultures and systems, they're dictated by the boss, you know, they set the tone. And therefore, you know, if you're, if, if you're a new CEO coming into a role and your previous CEO was, mm -hmm fired for x ethical mm. failure um you're going to be very cautious and sure. cognizant of the fact that you need to address you know those those risks yeah. that, uh, that occurred before so um you know if the ceos you're right companies are more than just the ceo of course they are mm -hmm. but if the ceo is being held to account that tells you a lot 
and just want to say hi, Juha. Juha, I'm really bad with names, but uh, hi. Yes, I do with the chat. So if you have questions for Oliver, you can add it here and I'll ask it. And I think it leads me to my next questions about what people and what companies are legally obliged to do sure. and what are the, the repercussions if they don't um, follow the, the rules, basically. And is it something like um, modern slavery? Is it something that you have the same rule all over the world or also do you have some countries where um, because of the difference of legislation you might have some abuse from other countries? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, modern slavery is, covers a number of um, forms of crime that are banned under international law and technically are illegal in every country, pretty much every country, there's a few exceptions. So the actual act of slavery, of enslaving someone or trafficking someone, that's illegal, right, mm. full stop. Yeah. And to be clear, we, you know, our, our customers are not companies at risk of doing that, of actually engaging in slavery, they're at risk of that occurring in their supply chains. Mm. So um, really what creates um, the market for us are laws in um, the UK, in new laws in Australia and the Netherlands and um, to a certain extent in America, um, which require certain companies to publish uh, modern slavery statements mm -hmm. every year, which um, lay out the steps they have taken to um, eliminate slavery in their supply chains and report on the due diligence. Mm -hmm. So this is totally really new. So the UK Modern Slavery Act is the oldest of, of, of the ones and it, it came into force in 2016, um, the actual reporting requirements. And um, it um, essentially, yeah, it's the weakest of them in many ways. But so they have to publish a statement. Um, their government has certain abilities to enforce. It can take out injunctions and so forth against companies that fail to comply with it. It is, um, they have only just started doing any form, form okay. of enforcement, so naming and shaming. So we, we're just starting to see companies really taking this seriously. Mm -hmm. um, now there's a range of kind of penalties, like each law country is different. I think the strongest one is actually the new um, Dutch child um, labor due diligence law. Is which, it the one you mentioned on, on LinkedIn um, a few weeks ago? Yeah, okay. which is kind of the people are not registering it mm -hmm. um, really because it's it's only just been passed it won't come in okay. force until next year but the penalties contained within that at, like for consistent failure are strong really strong so they they it's up to 10 percent of the company's um, revenue can be fined and directors can be imprisoned so that's a lot um, you know, to put it into context, uh, the GDPR legislation, so the, across Europe, the, the laws regarding um, data management, mm -hmm. they contain um, a penalty of a maximum penalty of four percent of revenue. Um, and so, BA British Airways got fined one hundred and eighty-three million pounds a couple of weeks ago for under GDPR. Um, so it gives you an idea. The max in G GDPR is four percent. The Dutch law is ten percent. Okay. So we kind of it, it really it varies, but this is a from a kind of legal point of view, it's definitely a risk for companies. Mm. But it's also more importantly the kind of reputational risk associated with it, and I think increasingly the risk from an employment perspective. You know, like people don't want to work for companies that are doing horrible things. Can another risk management company 
um, decide just to focus also on uh, modern slavery and immediately just push you out. Takes out the yeah. yeah, the fact that you're a small startup facing yeah. and, and being in the competition with those big firms. So I think, yeah, of course, there's in any technology, it can be copied sure. or, or it can be, you know, it can be um, someone else can do it themselves. I think there's two key points here. Maybe there's more. Um, firstly, when we say risk management, there's a big differentiator between what we do in the human rights space mm-hmm. and conventional corporate risk management. And this is something that is happily ignored by risk management companies because perhaps they haven't read the underlying documents. Yeah. But companies under the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, which is kind of an international agreement mm-hmm. um, or kind of consensus document, that document defines this process of human rights due diligence that Rights DD is built on. And um, core to that is, is the concept of assessing risk to rights holders, to actual people, in our case, workers in supply chains, not to the company. Mm. And so you know, that's the absolute foundational principle of this. And so that's why it's hard to kind of just add a module to a risk management product. That does what we do. Now you can do it and you know, claim it It'll works. Fine, yeah. yeah, but it, it's because you're th- looking at risk to two separate separate en- entities. There may be some correlation, but that's not the same as actually doing the process properly. So, so you know, conventional risk management, I don't consider appropriate for for, for challenge at mm-hmm. hand. I think you know, what what do we have that a a, a very large um, company doesn't have? is we're domain experts. We've done this both as consultants, as in-house. We're totally focused on this. We're motivated by this. This is not like a little bolt-on, like, oh, let's sell a a sideline in modern slavery because there's some laws here. We're motivated by the underlying problem. Mm -hmm. But we're business people. We've all worked all our lives in business or careers in business. We want to help companies do this properly. Okay, great. Um, I love that. And actually, I'd like to now focus more on the uh, business aspect um, also. Uh, So you're still a young startup. Um, For what I've seen, you have raised your seed round um, not long ago. I think it was about 100k. Well, so we haven't really raised um, a seed round as such. What we've been, so we went through an accelerator, so we had a little bit of investment from them. And then we've been good at securing grants and prize money. Mm-hmm. So with the team um, still own the vast majority of the company, so there's been very okay. little dilution. Um, we are, well, we're taking a bit more investment at the moment. Um, okay. But yeah, we're a slightly unusual story. In the, so we're not yeah. having a big round and closing the big round and then moving to the next step. And I mean, we will do that. Mm-hmm. But so far, we've taken, yeah, we did Bethnal Green Ventures, which yes. is a tech for good accelerator. That's are doing amazingly, an amazing job in the impact investment space Brilliant. and just uh, the accelerator, but also all the communities are building around tech for good in London. If, if anyone is interested in tech for good, check out Bethnal Green Ventures. Yeah. They're doing really great. Yeah, absolutely. And they've actually, they're, kind of like, they've, they're trying to spread that message around the world. So there's... Like there's meetup communities. Mm-hmm. I definitely know in Finland and, and oh, across really? across Europe, um, like Tech for Good. So um, yeah, they really they've been really great for us. Like yeah. they, 
went through it a year ago. We're still slightly over a year ago. Mm-hmm. We're still in regular contact with them. They really care. So what is the composition of the team right now? You mentioned that you have a COO, but also for what I kind of understood online, you're also a solo founder who then hired a few people to join you. Is it, is it correct? Yeah, that's correct. So kind of started up my own and did try the whole kind of finding co-founders. Yeah. Didn't Big game. Yeah, and some of it is literally a game, right? Yeah. You know, it's basically dating. But um, it didn't really, like, we kind of had a go at that with a couple of co-founders. didn't really work mm-hmm. out. Um, went back to just doing it on my own. Um, and then, um, yeah, secured some grant funding, which allowed me to hire some people. But it was, it, that kind of makes it sound like that it was just the money. It wasn't because both Rachel and Stephen, mm. who joined the company at that point, uh, they definitely weren't doing it for the money, right? Sure. It was fairly, um, we were still fairly poorly paid, as yeah. we said. Um, so we, you know, what we, we've worked together now for just over a year. And so Stephen and Rachel are significant shareholders in the company mm-hmm. and, you know, like are enfranchised. But really what I've realized is when you're, when you've got a social mission, when you've got a genuine potential impact, you can recruit phenomenal people. And so, yeah, there's four of us now. Mm-hmm. All Obviously, everyone says their teams are amazing, right? <laughs> these guys really are, yes. and, and we really work very well together. But, yeah, it's really that kind of guiding star of, of, of what we're doing mm-hmm. and, and the potential that exists um, that really unites us and allows us to focus on, on, on building the company. And what's the next step now? Are you looking to hire more people in the coming months? Or what is your timeline also for your product? Yeah, purpose? so we're basically... So in so in terms of product, we're um, working to launch actually a, 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 the first part of our product as a free offering in the first instance, in okay. hopefully by October. Mm-hmm. Um, and through the rest of this year and early into next year, building the rest of the product while still building, um, you know, servicing clients and bringing in more clients, but delivering to them in a more and more automated mm-hmm. way. So yeah, we're not kind of desperately trying to traction but we'll carry on bringing in new clients through through the next six months we are um, yeah we've just taking some more money in investment but not as a, a round their okay. ASAs so um, effectively a convertible note mm-hmm. and we will um, likely raise a, a larger round like a, still a pre-seed round yeah. in either autumn um, or early next year Okay. So yeah, we're not we're not kind of in full on investment mode at the moment, but that there's always conversations ongoing. So yeah, uh, it's your kind of classic build product, ship, yes, and of course actually bring in the funding to do that. But we sure. we you it's know we're finding the balance and the right timeline to get everything yeah. done together. Absolutely, yeah. and that's the challenge. I mean, particularly the the investment is is extremely time consuming. Was it hard for you um, to raise, even if it's not a seed round or pre-seed, but to raise the money you have raised until now? Looking at the fact that you're a solo founder and also um, you have the image of, of tech for good start, that even yeah. though you are, um, I think in my opinion, before anything else, you are a risk management tool, for many people you might just be a tech for good startup. So was it really hard to raise this first money? Yeah, so... No, because the money, the grants we've taken are specifically because we okay. are pursuing a social impact purpose. 
I think there's a wider challenge um, from an investor investment perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, firstly, I think there is there is a bit of a challenge raising that kind of pre-seed, so hundreds of thousands, um, just generally in the UK. Um, sure, everywhere, but definitely in the UK. Secondly, from the social impact perspective, there is, yeah, there is definitely. I think among some investors, a bit of a perception that like we're a charity, mm. or that this social purpose will is not um, consistent with raising, uh, with actually being a profitable business and, and growing fast. Um, and so, you, to a certain extent, you kind of fall into this slightly weird gap. Um, you know, what I the message I try and get out to investors is firstly just look at our market you know it's big look at you know, we're a revenue generating company not loads but we're generating revenue um, and don't think about social impact as a, a risk think of it, it as an opportunity it means that we really are united around a purpose yeah. and that's you, know, you won't generate financial returns until you're, you're delivering on a purpose and like going back to that point, you really can. It opens a lot of doors, you know, having a mission. It really allows sure. you to have conversations that you couldn't have if you're just, mm. I don't know, making pizzas, get to someone's door 10 seconds quicker. Someone asked me about the balance in terms of your image as a startup. Um, how do you balance that? Um, because you want to highlight your mission because that's what drives you. But in the same time, you want to be seen as... Uh, profitable business still learning obviously I, I guess like all communication it's about tailoring your message to your audience mm-hmm. um, and so yeah I, I think I naturally talk um, more about one side than the other to depending on the, the person sure. it, it, I'm speaking to the weird thing is this I don't feel the need to moderate my conversation and my talking about the message with clients and prospective clients okay. they get it okay. you know it's really not hard for people who work in a company to get on board with the idea that they want to help address these sort of modern slavery risks in their supply chain it doesn't mean that they're going to close down a business or anything like that but they can get on board with it yeah. i've never had a conversation with a client or prospective client where we're not on the same wavelength it's Which is a big the, thing because yeah. for most startup, there are always some people who are just like, "Well, I don't understand why I need you." So of course, it's a big no. now you can have a conversation about you know, from them whether it's right to be using a startup or mm. using a big brand consultancy. You know, which is a classic. You know, do you buy from IBM or the startup yeah. conundrum? All startups have, but the actual problem and our approach to it and our mission, mm-hmm. there's never. It's just. It just comes naturally. That's part, naturally part of conversation. I've never seen it as a problem. Where you have to, you know, where I find myself maybe wrongly, mm-hmm. um, kind of trying to strike more of a, like not to talk about that and more talk about the business is with investors. Do you think that the fact that we're based in London, we might be um, not biased, but just have a certain angle or, or more openness than in other countries? Do you think that you could have built the same business um, in other place, maybe in Europe or in the US or in other place in the world in the same way? Yeah, um, 
be clear, I think we are in Europe. (laughs) 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 Whatever, whatever the political uh, trajectory, you know, we are part of Europe here. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I've worked in nine countries, um, not in tech, um, has to be said. And I would say Britain is, well, London is, uh, you know, it's definitely a fantastic place to build business. You know, there's a, 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 I think fundamentally, I would say there's, there's, good bureaucracy here you know mm-hmm. very of course we've got rules we've got processes yeah. but it works it's quite accessible and that's really important you know if you're spending all your time uh you know trying to deal with red tape it, it can really it can kind of kill you basically yes um i think here in um my kind of running assumption here in london is it's a fantastic place to build this business because you've got a real diversity of, of companies and prospective clients um, whereas, you know, I guess if you compare that to Silicon Valley, for instance, mm-hmm. it's mainly technology, not exclusively mainly technology. So as a company, being in London is great because you've got a wide, diverse industry, uh, mm-hmm. um, kind of range of industries here. That being said, we aren't actually selling to any British companies. Um, we, sure. We're selling internationally at the moment, but obviously there. I think, um, you know, again, in London, you've got a massive and very diverse um set of skills and talents and I think again that the fact that people have worked in different industries is, is an asset. So before we wrap up do you have any uh, tip or anything um, for early stage entrepreneurs or maybe communities or things that have really been helping you so far? Yeah I think um, so definitely going over like if your social mission um, or a, a social impact uh, or environmental impact company Definitely look at uh, the Tech for Good movement um, yes. and, and, and Bethlehem Reinventures if you're looking for an accelerator. Um, I think um, it, in terms of fundraising, you know, mm-hmm. we've talked primarily about investment, but you should really be aware that there are other ways to get money um, and support. So, you know, grants, um, I'd really recommend that going for grants, but really thinking carefully about whether it's the right grant for you and whether you, or more importantly, whether you're the right organization for that grant giver. Um, but there is, you know, there's other money out there and, and they can, sometimes that comes with support and expertise as well, mm-hmm. which is really helpful. Um, so yeah, kind of look at that. Um, yeah, in terms of community, you know, you just don't be afraid, you know, you can enter and, and build relationships quickly yeah. um, and, and so that kind of speaks both to the, the startup um, landscape and then also business as well you know like it's actually surprising how quickly open doors open to you um, yeah I would even add to that uh, don't be afraid to also open up on your ideas um, some people especially first-time founders sometimes Go to event and say, oh yeah, I have a great idea for something, but I don't want to tell you what yeah, it is yeah. or what space it is for. And you're like, well, okay, stay on your own, but you're yeah. not going to get anything from me if you don't open up a bit. Yeah. Uh, people are not here to steal ideas. Um, and that's a great way to just get feedback, also brainstorm with people. And, uh, and once you hear some feedback all over again, after a while you think, oh, well, maybe if everyone thinks this way, maybe I should maybe, I don't know, improve the way I explain this or think about how Absolutely. could improve. Yeah, and I'd say the same with uh, clients and investors. Um, or even, you know, we have lots of conversations with 
uh, I, I guess companies you could describe as frenemies you know they're mm-hmm. like they are potentially a competitor but they're also a yeah. partner and so obviously you don't want to be you know, emailing your code to them um, but you be open with them you know mm-hmm. I, I, I think it's a way forward um, because really it's the execution that's hard not mm-hmm. the ideas Big thanks to Oliver from RiceDD for joining me on the stream today. And thanks to all of you for listening to Entrepreneurs Playing Games, podcast edition. You can find me on Twitter at Amandine Flax, A-M-A-N-D-I-N-E-F-L-A-C-H-S. And be sure to check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Flax for the full video version of our discussion. And of course, much more. Also, if you want to join the live stream and ask your own question to our next guest live, Entrepreneurs Playing Games is taking place every two weeks on Saturday morning. So keep an eye on our social media and I hope to see you there very soon.